All right. Luke chapter 15. Uh, another familiar parable tonight. This is the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And uh, in your Bible, it's probably listed as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, but I would like to suggest to you that um, it's actually the parable of the prodigal sons with a uh, plural uh, there. But uh, Jesus is teaching three parables in Luke 15. Okay, and this is the third one. And they all have to do with something that's been lost and then something that's been found. Um, the audience, which is a key thing to every parable that you study in terms of understanding what it's all about, is that familiar cast of characters, the tax collectors and sinners, along with, kind of out to the side, the Pharisees and the scribes. Okay? So, you know, as, it, as is uh, in many of Jesus' teachings, you have kind of a mixed crowd. And... Uh, the tax collectors and the sinners loved Jesus. They were, they were there with Him in many places. And they just loved Him and they uh, wanted to be with Him. And uh, they enjoyed hearing what He had to say. And there was a sense where Jesus really welcomed them. He did. And then the Pharisees and the religious folks were always kind of back critiquing Him and uh, calling him into question and challenging him. And so the Pharisees and the scribes again are at it again. And, uh, and so I'd like you to turn with me or look up here and we'll read uh, the, the parable here starting at verse 11. Alright, so hear God's Word. And He said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may, might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And that ends the reading of God's Word. Um, okay, tonight we're going to look at this parable, and I will tell you as well that I am very influenced by a certain minister by the name of Tim Keller as I look at this parable. Um, and so I'm going to break this down somewhat like he does uh, his sermon on this, um, but hopefully it'll be different as well. Um, but I want to do this. I want to simply look at these two characters, the younger son and the older son, and also look at kind of what's going on in their heart. What are they really serving? What are they really thinking about? And where are their idols, so to speak, that's guiding them? And really, the main point is this, because God is a God of lavish grace, both the rebellious wild child okay, and the self-righteous elder brother okay, are both called to repent and rest in the love of God. Okay? So, both the wild child and both the self-righteous elder brother are both called to repent. They're both called to, uh, to, to rest in the love of God. And so let's look at this wild child, okay? Uh, the rebel with, I'm gonna say he's the rebel with a cause, not without a cause. I mean, his cause is the party. Uh, I mean, he has been, um, with his dad. We don't know how many years. I mean, he's probably in his upper teens here. And, uh, you know, but he's the one who it's very easy for us to tell this is the sinner. You know, this is, you know, and, and as you think about the crowd that Jesus is talking with, I think they would be able to relate to him. The tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes and the sinners that were around Jesus, you know, as they're, as they're seeing this parable, they're, they're like, yeah, 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 that's me, that's me. The question for us in here is, who are you? Okay, who are you in it? And I would have to say that I think most of us are probably a little both, okay? We're a little both. We, we probably swing from the, uh, the wild child side also to the elder brother self-righteous side, okay? Um, so anyway, so here we have, you know, this younger wild child who I would say, you know, his philosophy of life is probably that old saying, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, that's his motto. Let's have fun now. Uh, I've been working here at the farm and it's time for me to go. It's time for me to, you know, have my day in the sun. And so in this story, he comes to the father in verse 12 and he says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, there's a commentator uh, by the name of Kenneth Bailey and he says this, that actually what he wants when he makes this request to his father, that he wants his share of the estate, he's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I wish you were dead. I'm tired of slaving here on the farm. Give me my share of the estate now. Okay? And he says this, 
he says, Kenneth Bailey says, he goes so far as to interpret the son's request as, a, as an equivalent to a wish that his father was dead. Okay? Give me my estate now. So the, so the father amazingly and graciously, you know, gives him his share. Uh, you know, he doesn't wait until he dies, but right then and there, he gives him his portion of the estate. Uh, and we know that immediately he goes off and he squanders his life and his wealth in wild living. And uh, we know that it had to do with women uh, because his brother says later on in the text that the reckless living was the equivalent to paying prostitutes for sex. Okay? Uh, so he was, uh, in fact, in verse 30 he says, you know, this younger son devoured your property with prostitutes. So he's the one who threw off all of his moral upbringing. Uh, he's the one that said, I don't need the Father. I don't, really, I don't need God. I want to experience life on my own. I want to just do what I want to do. And so what we see here is really a picture of desperation. You know, he follows his sin and he goes hog wild, literally, and, <laughs> and ultimately it puts him in bondage. Okay? Ultimately, it puts him in a state of desperation. And really, one of the points that I just want to bring out, a side point, is that all sin leads to bondage. Okay? All sin leads to bondage. That if you give yourself to sin, it changes you. Uh, and it brings about, it ultimately will bring about addiction in your life. In fact, the scriptures say the wages of sin is death. That when you're formed by your sin, whether it's like maybe you're struggling with pornography or maybe you're just struggling with gossip or tongue control or whatever it is, but the more you give yourself to that, the more you enter into that, it doesn't just do nothing to you. It changes you. It shapes you. It makes you more prone to fall the next time. Uh, it, it, it changes who you are. On the other side, when you worship the Lord and when you're... Um, in a place like this, and you're worshiping and you're, you're focusing on Jesus, that also shapes you. That also changes you. But whatever you give your heart to, whatever you worship, that changes you. It shapes you. Okay? And so what we're seeing with this guy is, is he gives himself to a sin, it leads to bondage, and it changes him. He gets addicted. Um, and, you know, the thing that we can't get away with because we're made in the image of God is the fact that, that we that we live in a moral universe. And because God is the Creator, He's written the book. You know, He's said that, you know, if you live according to My law, if you live according to this, it will go well with you. You will be blessed. Um, and so, it's kind of like, you know, the Bible is, to some extent, kind of like the owner's manual to a car. You know, I don't think anybody here would buy a brand new car and immediately go home and put chocolate syrup in the gas tank. You know, the owner's manual does not say to do that, okay? But if you did that, it would totally mess up. Well, in the same way, when we give ourselves to sin, it's kind of like putting chocolate syrup into our tank. You know, it's a, and, and it goes against everything and every part of who we are. It just messes us up, messes us up and puts us in bondage. I'm going to knock this over. I'm going to put that over there. Um, so all sin leads to bondage. Um, I was thinking about the Lord of the Rings and Gollum. And Smeagol or whatever. And just how, you know, he started out as one of the brothers, right? The Hobbit, uh, you know, and uh, then then it was the ring, you know? And, 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 then, and what happens? The power of the ring, like, 
that was his lust. You know, if he could just have the ring, he would have the power. And what happens in that first scene? You know, is it in, in the second one? The third one, but that scene in the you know in the pond, and he strangles and he kills his brother, and then immediately you know he's like overwhelmed, and it changes him, and then slowly, 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 his sin just he becomes in bondage to it, and next thing you know, he's a little bald like naked guy running around in caves like with like with bad hair, and like he's bald, you know, he doesn't have any hair, and he's just he's murmuring to himself all the time, and just you know he's his whole self has been radically changed by this idolatry. Okay? That's what sin does to us. When we give ourselves constantly to sin, it changes us and it makes us like Smeagol. Okay? A slimy creature who lives in a far off place talking to himself about my precious. Okay? Don't go there. Um, okay. <laughs> it says that he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. You know, I mean, that's how bad it got. He was there feeding the pigs in the farmyard and, and thinking about maybe that looks pretty good. That's how bad it got. That's how bad it got. But ultimately, in the midst of that, and this is awesome, that God uses that to change us as well. You know, He puts us in difficult situations um, and it gets our attention. And so the Lord was beginning to work. He brought him to the, the end of himself there at that pig farm. And now he's waking up to see that, you know what, I'm in a desperate situation. I just need to go back and just be a hired hand. It would be much better. Um, but I want to just make this point that this, that this idea of um, just being the wild child, the rebel, saying no to Jesus and yes to our sin and to whatever we want to worship, this is idolatry. This is what our heart wants to do. And uh, the Rolling Stones have a, had a great song. Mick Jagger back in the 60s, you've heard it. It's probably their top hit. But, you know, it's I can't get no satisfaction. You know, I can't get no, I can't get no, I can't get no satisfaction. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried. I can't get no satisfaction. Okay? That's what, that's what idolatry does to us. We think we're going to be satisfied. And we go ahead with whatever we're going to do. And we find out that did not satisfy and we have to have more. And I mean, Tiger Woods is a good illustration of this. I mean, here's a guy, greatest golfer in the world. Um, he's got all the money in the world. He's worth billions. He has a foundation, several foundations after him. He's on, on par to win the most major golf tournaments in anyone in the history of golf. He has a former swimsuit model as his wife. He has children by her. But in the midst of all that, it's not enough. It's not enough. I mean, that's why he falls. You know, he falls into incredible sexual sin. I don't know how many affairs, maybe 16 or more. Um, and Augustine said this about our hearts. Our hearts are restless until they find our rest in Him, in Jesus. Okay, that the nature of our heart, the sinful nature of our, of our heart is basically one big vacuum cleaner. Okay, it's just sucking. It's looking for anything. Let me worship. Let me put something in there. You know, whether it's entertainment, whether it's sex, whether it's just partying, whether it's career, whether it's money, having a romantic relationship, whatever it is. Okay? Moment by moment, we're led by those things and our heart wants those things and our heart says, this is going to make me ultimately happy. This is my salvation. See, we, we worship. This is how God has made us. We can't help but worship. We're made in His image. And so if we don't worship God... We're going to worship something. 
And that's what Paul said in Romans, that instead of worshiping the Lord, we suppress Him out of the picture and we worship the creation. Good things. You know, food is good. Sex is good. But we twist it and we worship it like it's the only thing. It's like an over-worship. This is what's going on with the wild child. Okay? C.S. Lewis said this, um, you know, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable, probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me repeat that. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, that's the longing of the, of the heart. And we put things in there, but it just doesn't satisfy. And it's kind of like Ecclesiastes. If you want to read a great book about basically a test case on trying to find meaning in life, that's Ecclesiastes. you got King Solomon. He's the richest man in the world. He is the most interesting man in the world. Okay, and, I mean, seriously. And he, he has everything. And so he basically sets out to journey through life and say, I'm going to fill my heart with whatever I want. I'm going to see if it works. I'm going to see if I can find meaning. And so he goes out and he basically starts building all kinds of like great things and parks and buildings. And, and uh, you know, he sees if that satisfies him and it doesn't. And then he, he, he talks about the pleasures of the flesh, wine, women, and song. And he has, I think, something like 600 wives and concubines. Okay? Um, that he has in his harem. Okay, but again, it always comes back to meaningless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing truly satisfied, nothing truly fills me. And he seeks knowledge in books. Maybe it's education. Maybe I can find ultimate purpose and meaning there. And so he studies and he talks about how it wearies the mind. I know you guys uh, have experienced that as well. You're studying and you're falling asleep um, in class and other places. Um, but he, he, he comes to this conclusion after he basically samples everything in creation. And he's rich. He, he can do this. He comes back to this. He says, the conclusion is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the chief end of man. That he sees that all of this other stuff is fleeting. It's meaningless. It doesn't stay with him. He's unsatisfied. And so he comes back to, I need God. <laughs> I need the Creator. And I just need God for who He is. I need God because He is God. And that is enough. Okay? He doesn't need God just for the benefits of God. He just needs God. He just needs Jesus. Okay? And so that's how he gets satisfied. Um, so we all have this problem. We all have this wild child inside of us. That's the sinful nature. That's the nature that wants to just worship the creation and whatever it is. And so are you feeling that? Are you feeling that longing? Are you feeling that desire to worship other stuff? That's good to recognize that if you if you see that in yourself because that's the beginning of being self-reflective and also the beginning of repentance, realizing that's what's going on and seeing that you're, you're falling and you can't do it. Um, and so... This is, this is what happens. So, do you see that? Do you see that inside of yourself? If you do, begin to cry out to God and say, Jesus, fill me. Fill me. You know, let me, let me taste of your goodness. Let me taste of your beauty. 
I don't need these other things. Let me, let me be satisfied in you. Help me to be satisfied in you. There's crazy temptation out there. And He will help you. He will help you come to your senses. He will wake you up. And He will um, help you, encourage you. So that's the younger son. The second son, the elder brother, he's what we would call the moralist, okay? Or the guy who thinks that through his actions of being a nice, obedient son at home, uh, he's good. He's fine. Okay, but what we really see in his life is that he doesn't love anybody. He can't love his own brother. And, and so as the story goes on, uh, you see this elder brother, um, and he's there slaving. He's, uh, he believes really that through obedience, hard work, loyalty, he deserves this inheritance from his father, that he really deserves to be blessed. And because of what he's done, um, he can also judge the younger brother um, that didn't follow through. And to some extent, that makes perfect sense. I mean, little brother, you went out and squandered your wealth with prostitutes. You do not deserve to come back here and celebrate. Okay, I mean, I mean, do you guys not feel this? I feel this. You know, I was here working the farm, bud. Where were you? And so we have this very interesting twist here. And, uh, you know, this person, again, who is, he, who is Jesus pointing at and trying to get now? He's, he's, now he's talking with the Pharisees. Okay, he's talking with those religious folks. And they're drawing this parallel in this allegory, this parable, that, you know, Jesus, Jesus is hitting them pretty hard here. Um, and so, here's his problem he can't love his brother. <laughs> um, he's resentful of the Father's grace. So he thinks the Father was harsh working for him. Uh, you know, and, and he lived his whole life working and slaving uh, for his Father. And he says to his Father in verse 29, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The question is, did he really ever ask his dad? I'm sure his dad would have graciously did that. But he had this whole idea that he was just slaving for his dad. Um, you know, he, he, he doesn't have a sense that, wow, this is a great farm and my dad has loved me and he's put me in charge and I can just enjoy this work on the farm and isn't it wonderful and I'm blessed to be here as part of this family. Instead, it is very much a mentality of he's slaving away uh, and he is... Doesn't really. It's not like he's even feeling like a son. He's almost feeling what we might say like an orphan, um, just trying to earn his way with his dad, trying to gain blessing. And so there's a real hatred of his younger brother. You can tell he's totally opposed to the brother coming back. Um, he's, he doesn't even call him his brother. He can't even say that's my brother. What he says in verse 30 is uh, when the but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Okay, so he's distancing himself from his own flesh and blood. So we're getting a picture of his heart. Deep, deep down, um, he has no love. Deep, deep down, he has no grace. Deep, deep down, he cannot forgive his brother. Um, he's resentful to his father. In Luke chapter 7, verse 47, there's an interesting story too about another Pharisee and a prostitute. And in that passage, Jesus 
says this, He who has been forgiven much loves much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. And that is a great line because Jesus is saying that when it comes to understanding understanding your sin and the debt that has been paid for you is crucial to understand to loving people. If you don't understand what God has done for you in forgiving you and giving you His grace, then you're going to have a hard time loving people because you're going to think you're better than them and they have to live up to some standard. I mean, that's what the, that's what the older brother was doing. You've got to live up to my standard here, son. And then maybe I'll love you. He didn't understand that he was just as big of a sinner as, as the younger brother who went out with prostitutes. That we're, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So hatred and being stubborn and having a bad attitude and slaving away and not loving people is also sin. It's not just the technicolor sins of the younger brother, you know, but it's, it's the Pharisees who don't love anybody. Their sin is just the same. It's, it's, in fact, it's almost worse. As you read the New Testament, Jesus' harshest words are for the Pharisees because they can't love anybody. They think they got it all together. And so He constantly is drilling them. The, the people that are sinners and tax collectors come to Him and they recognize right away, man, I'm a nasty sinner. I need Jesus. And He welcomes them in. But the Pharisees always keep Him... They stiff-harm Him away. Um, so this is the older son. He's trusting himself. He's trusting his obedience. Um, and you know, ultimately, the main issue is that he is self-righteous. Uh, he's got no love or compassion. Uh, he thinks that the way to be blessed by his father is by earning it. There was an old mutual fund company called Smith Barney. Do you guys even remember this? It's like, we, we make our money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. And to some extent, that is how the Pharisee acts. That's how the older brother acts. I'm going to earn this love from my father by doing all of these things. And then he will bless me. And that's what, that's what Pharisees do. That's what self-righteous people do with God. They think God is basically a big... Santa Claus in the sky, if I live this life, then God, you're going to give me the life that I deserve, right? You know, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray to you, if I live this Christian life, if I don't do some of the things that other people do here, then God, won't you bless me? Won't, won't you give me the life I need? That's not, that's not a gospel-centered life. That's, I'm, I'm basically bargaining with God to do things so that He might bless me. Um, the Christian, the Gospel life is, I am a big, nasty sinner. Whether I've done the things that the younger son has done or the things that the older brother has done, I'm a sinner. And I'm in desperate need of grace and His love. And so, that's what the elder brother needed to see, but he couldn't see it. That's what Paul ultimately saw because Paul was that elder brother. Paul was the Pharisee. Paul And Paul finally came to see that it wasn't about his law-keeping, it wasn't about his heritage, it wasn't about being a Hebrew of Hebrews, born on the eighth day, circumcised, all those things. It was about Jesus. And finally, in Philippians, uh, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. That... That Paul the Pharisee, the elder brother, was changed when he got a hold of Jesus. 
And he saw that, guess what? Jesus is my righteousness. It's not about my righteousness. It's about, I am not righteous, but I trust in what Jesus has done. And that is where my hope is. Luther said that the Gospel is all about personal pronouns. Okay? I have been crucified with Christ. Okay? Um, the, the Son of God uh, died for me and loves me. Paul got it. He knew that Jesus on the cross had him in mind. And that changed everything. That Jesus was his substitute. That he changed, that he uh, sacrificed himself for him. And so the question is, where, who are you in this passage? Like, are you more like the younger? Are you more like the older? And what I'm saying is, I think we're a lot like both of these, depending on the hour and the day. But here's another test about if you're the older brother. Do you have younger brother friends? Do you have younger brother friends? Do you have people in your life like Jesus was hanging around, tax collectors and sinners? Not necessarily tax collectors or people who work for IRS or whatever. But do you have those kind of people in your life? Maybe they're in your family. Do you, are you friends with them? Do you love them? Do you pray for them? Do you spend time with them? Your roommates, okay, who might not know you, the Lord, people around you. Okay, do you spend any time with them, do you, or do you just judge them, and do you just walk by them and never talk to them, or never even think about how you can develop relationships with them? Jesus was hanging around tax collectors and sinners. These were not the religious people. Okay, do you separate yourself, or do you engage? Do you have younger brother friends? If not, it could it be that you're the older brother is kind of who you are and what you, where you're getting your righteousness. You might be a legalist. I know that I am. Um, the last thing is this. What's the only thing that's going to bring both of these prodigal sons home? Both of these rebellious sons home? That's the grace of God. The gracious love of the Father. And so, that's the only thing that's going to change us from our rebellious ways and our self-righteous ways is when we get a hold of God's grace. Okay, And so we have this great picture of this Father who is full of grace throughout this whole story. And so He has longing eyes Okay, is one of the things that we see. In verse 20, "...but while He was still a long way off, the younger son, His father saw Him and felt compassion, and He ran, and He embraced Him and kissed Him." He was longing. He was looking out for him. I don't know if every night when the sun goes down, he looked, you know, in that direction, but it's clear that he was watching for a son. He was waiting for a son. He was hoping that his son would, co- would come to his senses and turn around. And we have a picture of that, of God in our scriptures. Okay? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's the good shepherd that goes out after the the one sheep that runs away and brings him back. He has a longing heart, a graceful heart that is desiring to bring lost people back into fellowship. It says that he ran. Okay, now commentators say this is extremely unusual in the ancient world that the patriarch, the older man of the family, would run. Okay, they just didn't do that. It's kind of like in, in uh, uh, Back to the Future, like when I think it was the third one when when uh, 
he was there in the Western, and they were like so surprised that he would run for fun. Run for fun? Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he runs. He runs. And uh, he hoists up the robes, and he showed a little leg, I'm sure. And he runs towards his son. Uh, one commentary says, the father cast aside all behavioral conventions of the time as running was considered to be undignified for an older person, especially a wealthy landowner such as this man. And so, it doesn't matter. The son is coming. I'm going after him. He lavishes love. He embraces him. He falls on his neck. He, he can't stop kissing him. He is, he's just overwhelmed with emotion and physical affection. This is the kind of God that you have. This is the kind of God that you have. This is the God that embraces sinners. <laughs> Repentant sinners that come back to Him. He's not a, he's not a standoffish God. But he, but he embraces us. He loves us. Uh, he throws this huge party. In fact, He doesn't even let the son who had this prepared speech finish it. Immediately, He cuts him short and He just says, you know, let's, let's go get the servants out here. Let's get the best robe. Put it on him. Put the ring on his finger. Shoes on his feet. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. The party has begun. Let the dancing begin. The lost son has come home. And so, this is a God who throws parties. You know, this is a God who rejoices. This is, a, this is not some stoic... God up there, you know, a combination of Father Time and, you know, your grandfather and Santa Claus up, up in the sky. I mean, this is a God who lavishes on us with His love and His grace and He throws a huge party. In fact, this is where it's all going. It's all going to the, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. I mean, where, is, where are we going? We're going to the wedding. Okay, when Jesus comes back and the bride, the church meets the groom. Okay, and there's going to be a huge party and John Hoobler is going to be dancing and all kinds of things are going to be happening. But seriously, God is, God is going to be throwing a huge party. And that's what He's doing here. It's a picture of that. Um, this is the kind of God that we have. And so, uh, what kind of God do you have in your mind? Do you have a partying God who's, who throws uh, celebrations and parties uh, for sinners? Because that's, that's what we have here. Um, he, he even he even gives grace to the older son. He goes out to him. He entreats him. Come in, the son of yours. He was lost. Now he's found. He was he was dead. You know. I mean, he, now he's alive. Like, come, come back, come back. Everything I have is yours. Okay. The son. You know, we don't know. It's it's left unopened. But, but it, it doesn't say that he went back to the party. Okay. But but the father is even. He's trying to woo us back to love. And uh, but how how do we change? You know, as we think about at the end of this, how, you know, depending on where we are, you know, whether or not we're the legalist or whether or not we are the person who just parties and we're full of idols and we reject God. The only thing that's going to change us and change our hearts is that when we understand the grace of Jesus. And there was a guy; he was a pastor back in the 18th century by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And he wrote a sermon called An Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Okay, now that's a lot of big words back there. But basically, what he says is that in order for the idols of our heart, whether or not they're the legalist idol saying that I'm going to earn all this to be satisfy God, or I'm just going to throw myself into partying and pleasure and that's going to satisfy me, in order to have a new affection 
Um, we have to we have to have a greater love of something to dislodge our idols. Okay, and so here's what he said. He said um, uh, it's seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. Okay, so think of your sin. At least it is very seldom that this is done through the instrumentality of reasoning or by the force of mental determination. So he's saying there's no way you're going to be able to change yourself just by like sheer, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to sin that way. He's saying that you have to be captured by a greater love. And he says this, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed and one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. And so his point is, is you gotta be, you gotta have the taste of Jesus. That the only way you can dislodge your idols, whatever your temptations are, you know, whatever your, 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 the things that you run to to find life outside of Jesus, you have to find Jesus as greater than that. And that will dislodge your idols. It'll change your heart. And that'll change your actions. Okay? So he says this. So the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, okay, of something it desires, you know, whether it's religious moral pride or irreligious idolatry, is by the expulsive power of a new one. It's only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one and great predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires in the only way that deliverance is possible. So he's basically saying it's only when you get a hold of Jesus and the gospel. And when you know that Jesus loves you and died for you and gave his life for you and really believe that your deepest core level again and again and again in the midst of temptation is when things get dislodged and you change. And so I don't know what you're struggling with. But that's where it starts. That's where change starts. In the middle of the heart with Jesus in the center of it and His love and His grace. Let me pray. Father, thanks for tonight. I know it was maybe a little long. Um, Father, we're people very much like the prodigals here. The younger one who says yes to anything but You. And many times we swing to the other side and we think we're self-righteous and we got it all together. Jesus, we know that You are our only hope and I pray that we would know that at a deeper and deeper level. You would change us. You would give us a new affection of Jesus in the center of us. Um, Lord, help us to befriend people on both sides, whether or not they're self-righteous or they're sinners and younger brothers. God, let us be a light here for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we're going to Stand and close. This is a song about the party.